0: This is the first ever episode of Rigcast. Reliability Interest Group is behind this. And the whole point of this is to be an irreverent uh, but informative session on reliability. Specifically for the people behind engineering reliability on systems that we all use. And so today I am so 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 pleased to finally stop procrastinating and have Amy Toby here to talk to about this. Miss Amy from Twitter, I believe, is the is the drop handle there. Yeah? Miss Amy so, Toby. Miss Amy Toby. There you go on Twitter. Right. I will give you a little gap at the end to talk about sure, sure. Where, where people should go and check you out. But it's so I'm so happy to have you here. I'm also a little daunted. Because oh. no one is, I think, as good at what I would call the reliability sort of, um, they used to call it the hitch slap, I think, with some people. like That, that <laughs> ability to take someone down for saying something that is is just wrong. It's just wrong to oh, so stop it. No, I, no, it's I brilliant. I don't want really to do want to
1: take people down. Like, I, my goal is to like, um, reach people and, and, and help them understand what we understand from our experience.
0: I think you reach them. I think you oh, reach good. them so well, but there's a, there's a thing about connecting. There's with- <laughs> an
1: element of feeling like a, like a big slap sometimes, right? Like there's sometimes i go by, um, before we started, right. We were talking about that t-shirt, the, yeah. the simply restart everything. And every time I see that meme go by, right. About SREs just go and restart things. I just, I want to go down to the, like go up to San Francisco, go out to Fisherman's Wharf, spend an hour shopping and find the biggest, worst fish I can find. And then go and find it and just like fish slap people, right? Like just that's the feeling I get. Then I take that feeling and I turn it into energy. That's like, okay, how do I get through and help people understand that when we restart things, we lose opportunities.
0: Exactly. Exactly. When it's gone, it's gone. And actually that's a big deal there, right? So SRE, there are a billion ways it could be killed. Right, site reliability engineering which is getting it's getting a lot of attention right now there are a billion mm-hmm. ways it could be killed and i think you know both you and i have been close to devops and that sort of embracing of additional responsibilities into your team hasn't that been wonderful everyone wanted that <sighs> and <laughs> and now, and, bring now <laughs> and now they're bringing reliability so right so this is one of the questions we talked about earlier that i, I have to put to you i love it um, so if DevOps was destroyed by CICD or the industry behind CICD, what is going, I, I, I'm going to use a slightly different phrasing on the question because what the phrasing originally was is, is SRE already fucked? And I like that, <laughs> but let's go with what's going to kill SRE? What in 10 years time, probably less, when we're sitting here going, what happened to SRE? Oh, that happened. What's it going to be? What do you think?
1: Well, I, I think it's already happened um, and it's Kubernetes. Um, <laughs> Kubernetes and I think happened. it's just a continuation of Google's gag, um, which is the way Google solved this problem was, you know, we capture the code before it gets to production and we set up a big imposing gate um, with rules, but also the investment in things like training and uh, hiring and onboarding and stuff that a lot of other companies don't budget. But then you get to the board gate and your code has to fit in the board-shaped box, right? And we think of that as a container, but it's much more complicated than that in Google, right? Like there's a lot of like libraries and support infrastructure that you're expected to use and that is made available to you and have whole teams behind them. And so I think Kubernetes is really that thing where we're stuck in the ops world still. We still have that left foot in systems administration. Um, there is a lot of opportunity to improve reliability of services by getting them into Kubernetes, doing, you know, green, blue deployments, whatever colors you like to choose for that. <laughs> um, you know, running more than one copy of the service is still um, in some corners of the world pretty fantastical. Um, so this, this idea, uh, I think that's really the thing is like we're, we're going to we keep being pulled back into operations um, is really what I think is holding us back from being able to push organizations into the the behaviors that enable reliability, as opposed to the technologies. So I'm going to get all kind of
0: horrifically buzzword now, right? So is, is it is it that we're still shifting things right <laughs> when we yeah. when we were supposed to be shifting them left? This is this is you know you have to forgive me I mean, now. So this is you know is this is this the heart the nub of the problem is that there's still this urge to nudge things to the right a little bit when actually all the benefit. Comes from closing the feedback loop and pushing it as far left as possible into um, the engineering team's lives, I suppose.
1: Yeah, and that's that's the long, long, long tail, right? That's where DevOps is still stuck too, right? DevOps, my my version of DevOps, you know, starting before it was even a term, was getting developers together and and, and starting to have that what you said feedback loop, right? Like talking to the developers every day is what resulted in going, oh, you know, like I could sit down for a couple of hours, write some Perl, and this thing would be automated and we would all be so much happier, right? That's where it started for me, like in 2004, I think, Um, you know, was was that kind of conversation. I, I remember that day very vividly of talking to a developer and then like us having that moment of clicking and realizing what we needed to do. And that's the magic of DevOps, I think. And for SRE, it's again, it's it's not just putting the right technology in front of people, but creating the understanding that the way this technology fits together, not just the tech pieces, but the people pieces, is how yeah. we enable like, the really pleasant reliability that I think we all want, um, that we're struggling to get to. I,
0: I can remember, actually, that that's something that I experienced early on in the DevOps days as well. I sat down with Chris Reed. At, uh, I think it was a QCon in London, and he just turned around and said DevOps to me. the first time I think I'd ever heard the term. And he said, uh, there's this thing called DevOps. And I was, I was, it was, pro- we were possibly in a bar. So I can't honestly say I was paying a huge amount of attention. But he <laughs> said, it's this DevOps thing. We, honestly, a lot of my stories start that way. Um, <laughs> but he said, there's this DevOps thing. And he said, um, what it is, is we're, we're basically trying to get two groups of people to talk to one another because good things will happen. And i thought that makes sense to me and then everything's happened since has made slightly less and less sense at different times and you know i can see where we are now but i see i see that with sre is that i think people i often have these conversations with different people around sre and i say well for me it's enabling another conversation um it's just all the tools of it all the pieces of it are really their conversation enablers they don't really matter as much as you think they do if you do slo's and we'll get onto those in a minute right (laughs) if you do slo's that doesn't automatically make anything any better um if you do uh even if you try and practice
1: We already had dashboards. We're going there. We're going to dashboards. you just stick it on a dashboard, like you've done, congratulations, you've got another dashboard. Exactly. Um, We could always
0: need more. There's actually been a great thread, hasn't there, recently on Twitter about that, about dashboards. I think uh, Charity Majors has been talking about it. Jessica uh, has been mentioning it. I, I know I we're have gonna a get lot there. Of mixed feelings on that. Let's go to some responses on that in a minute because I have a couple myself. Because okay. I th- I think it's great. No, d- and full respect to those people. They tend to bring up subjects that are inflammatory yep. and beautiful, and so let's get inflamed when we talk about those. So I just mentioned about SRO, SROs. Let's try those. Let's let's change some acronyms. Three letter acronym that isn't out there yet. <laughs> SLOs, <laughs> SLOs. So, if, could you describe SLOs? Your perspective, your game on SLOs. Someone who's been actually practicing and around these things to the point where you see where they go, what they, how much they, the conversation they create, how much pain they cause. Describe an SLO in one sentence. Can you do that? If I'm, I'm dumb, sentence. I know nothing. In one sentence. <sighs>
1: Wow, I, I didn't think you were going to challenge me to get it to one sentence. I usually use a lot. Okay,
0: um, <laughs> okay, and I, okay. I, can and give I guess you a that's <laughs> that's the
1: sentence, right? Is SLOs are are, are more than a sentence. Um, Beautiful, it's, you know, and yeah. expand a little, right? Like, yes yeah. so it's tell a lot me, of things we already do as activities in our organizations. Um, you know, like our product teams, largely or should be, understanding what the user journey for different things that we build are. Right, we've we add a new endpoint end to our API. We should be able to go to the product people and be like, why does this exist and how does it impact the user? Uh, It turns out that that's not a universal practice, though. (laughs) So one of the things that SLOs brings to the table is now we don't have just product on the ball for all of the stuff. Now we have another group, SRE, or even our software engineers, if if you do kind of a disaggregated approach to SLOs, um, coming and saying, hey, what the heck is this user journey? Um, I need to know how this connects to the customer. And so that's one of those little magical things of SLOs that, that seems really trivial on the surface. If I just say like, yeah, it's connecting our technology to the user experience. That sounds kind of dumb, right? In the, or kind of, you know, not useful in the first pass. But when you think about as we build our SLO program inside of a tech organization and starting to start that conversation in the feedback cycle, as you mentioned, um, of Having that conversation with our product team and having that discussion in our engineering teams, now all of a sudden we're starting to tap into the, the magic of bringing people thinking about empathy, basically, right? Like thinking about what is the impact on the user that yeah. creates a different product. It creates a different outcome. Um, and, and so like I haven't even gotten to the numbers yet. And I think that's the most important part of all of this. The, the big shift in our organization is that connection. And then we do we we create accountability through metrics.
0: How how would you? I love that as well. Accountability through metrics also again it's it's a shared experience. Um, at yeah. An SLO. I mean, I had an interesting conversation recently with um, a company where they said that they had SLOs, but they were for the team only. They were for the team. I heard this. They they're for the team. They're not for anybody else. They're for the team, which I think flies in the face of what you've just said. Is that? They're, they should be almost the, one of the most public aspects of everything that you're working on, public inside maps, the organization, yeah, and not used as a stick to hit anybody with. Because let's get on to SLOs and SLAs a I little mean, you, later you on. You use them as a stick
1: to hit leadership with. Yes,
0: I love like, that. So, That's, so way. <laughs> That's a good one.
1: I don't know what the stick, but I do, I do talk to engineers about that, right? And so it is for the team in a way in that the empowerment goes to the engineering team, right? Now- product and engineering together, but like course, ultimately yeah. the way I talk to engineers about this is I'm, the idea here is these metrics aren't here for me to beat you over the head with. They're actually for me to beat over the head over whoever's doing the prioritization of your work, right? Gotcha. If that's yeah. you, then I'm going to come talk to you about it. Hey buddy, you're, you're, you're doing great on the features, but your reliability isn't doing great. We need to pull that lever back a little bit. Right. Um, but the empowerment is to let people create more sustainable engineering organizations. That's that's my goal. I don't care what anybody else thinks, right? Because that's what I want to build.
0: I don't think that's a bad goal at all. Actually, we should we haven't really done the usual obligatory introductory section we didn't. yet. We didn't we didn't. We just I just did the ask longest
1: you. cold start in the history of we
0: podcasts. <laughs> I'm gonna change a whole bunch of rules with this podcast. That's one of them. <laughs> So let, let's go back in time and maybe the editors get involved. Maybe they don't. Let's just introduce, let's get in the habit of introducing 16 minutes Sure. In. Let's do that. So um, well, <laughs> Amy, introduce yourself as, as, as happily as you, take as long as you want. I just gave you a whole lot of limitations on everything you said before. <laughs> now I'm not going to give you any limitations, right? Introduce yourself, g- give people a taste of the experiences and places you've been, the, the, where you've had to do this stuff. Please, over to you.
1: Sure. Um. So I'm a music school dropout. Um I went to classical music school playing trombone for four and years and change. Um in the midst of all that kind of got hooked on Muds. Um, wanted to kind of change some things about them. So I bought See Unleashed the I don't know if you remember the old Unleashed series of books in the 90s. I do. Yeah. Uh, gold I I and red somewhere. with the tear down that printed on the cover. Yeah, um, I did. I oh, was there a, a bunch of that.
0: unleashed or something. they might have been yeah.
1: those. Yeah. And I started on a Windows 95 machine. Yeah. Um, and I, I didn't remember. have money. So I, I was using the GCC compiler via something called Sigwin, which fortunately modern generations don't have much experience with because it was horrible. Mm. Um, except that it worked. I was able to build, write code and build it and um, start learning C. And I was complaining about how slow it was one day on a, a intermodal chat thing. Um, and everybody's like, oh, yeah. So here's what you do. You go down to your bookstore and you buy Slackware Unleashed. And it'll have a CD in the back. And you install that on in your computer. You pull your code over. Piece of cake. Um, I disappeared for six months because the first thing <laughs> I did was screw up the partition table on that machine. And it had my, at the time, girlfriend's homework on it. So I had to spend all this time getting that back. Um, <laughs> I decided I, I liked working on Linux. Um, and then shortly after that, I ended up in the industry.
0: Well, In the Side industry. the in, I like that. The, yeah. the industry. That sounds bad. It used to be you were a member of the family and you knew what sort of things you were dealing with. Now it's the industry.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I kind of, you know, like right away ran, ran into high availability stuff. My first job was at a stock trading firm um, at the time called Oldie Discount, downtown Detroit, um, which is now H&R Block's trading firm. So it got bought by H&R Block during that time. Cool. But like, you know, I walk right in. The first thing that I get showed is a Stratus machine, which is one of these boxes that has the only shared part of the whole thing is the backplane. It's got dual CPU boards, dual memory boards, and you can pull them out and swap them live and all this stuff. And this was in 2000. Um, you know, and from there, you know, doing work like putting the first Linux machines on the NASDAQ, that was me uh, and, oh, and another awesome. person there. It's your fault. Um, they, we didn't ask permissions, <laughs> We just did it and didn't tell them. Um Best way that technology we supposed to do that. <laughs>
0: it's, the, it's the best way technology gets anywhere that way. <laughs> yeah,
1: you know, and that was dealing with Linux HA. I worked at a place called Priority Health for a really long time, seven years, um, which is where I experienced kind of my first taste of DevOps and this generative culture is what I guess we call it these days, right? Which is where you get together with other engineers and technology people, or even product and PMO and stuff like that. And you have conversations and you have better outcomes because people are talking to each other and being good humans to each other. Um, and we did that in spades. We were a little tiny healthcare company in the early aughts, had full online presence. You could check your claims. The doctors could come in and check claim status and uh, do updates and things in like 2003, 2004. Um, so we were pretty far ahead of the game. It was all written in Perl in the back end. And we were deploying all this. And that was that that automation system I mentioned earlier where we developed that. Um, so I've kind of been around this stuff a long time. That's where it all started. And I, I moved west in 2007. It bounced around a bunch. Um, and I've seen some things. And so, you know. <laughs> I've seen the, some those things. things. I I've know where seen, the bodies have been hidden. <laughs> yeah. adds up to, you know, like a, um, I don't know. Some days it's like a, um, a font of energy that helps me go forward. And sometimes it's a boiling sea of rage. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, you've but it all described. kind of pushes me toward, under, you know, wanting to understand why organizations end up in the bad place where mm. people don't talk to each other, where developers aren't don't feel safe to say, "Hey, I screwed up," um, and and figure out why and how to move forward. And so that's where my head is today. I'm not going to cover all that middle territory. Or the middle you know, some territory. Some big companies, yeah. some small companies. Um, some you've heard of, some you haven't. Yeah, um, you know, but yeah. like I can that's, check that's you like, out on LinkedIn. I'm pretty sure yeah. they'll find out. Yeah. <laughs> So that's fabulous,
0: right? So you've, I, I love the fact that essentially job one was high availability Yep, <laughs> and pretty much everything. And actually that's interesting is a, HA was what we used to, I remember we used to do this with yeah. HA. You could buy products that were specifically HA. In fact, I believe that HA was probably a enterprise sales wet dream, essentially. Um, I can remember that <laughs> being the idea. And I can- oh, yeah. And I can see, you know, it's it sort of flipped around a bit. And what I, I used to say is that uh, HA is hope-driven. <laughs> it's like a, it's a hope-driven deployment system. We've done this thing, and we hope it works. It should work because we followed the recipes in the manual that say it's now HA. And you'd sit that there and go- one of the
1: things about Priority Health that was magical, though, is we, we did the HA setups, and we exercised them. Ah, uh-huh. every, That's every month. Difference. Now yeah. it was it was a thing you don't hear a lot about these days. We had maintenance weekend one one weekend a month. We had we had a Saturday. We would all of assist administrators would go to work, and our exercise for the day was fail all the services out of data center A into data center B, which is across the parking lot, um, but still in a different building. <laughs> um, so it was you know better than nothing.
0: Yeah, um, much we better. would do
1: maintenance on the primary machines. You know any network maintenance that needed to be done, we'd do them then. Um, sweep the data center, all that stuff. Yeah. And then we would fail everything back before we went home. So, would you so cool we that? were exercising it every month. And I think that's really the key thing about much of the HA approach that never really, why it was, it didn't work out for everyone because if you don't exercise it, you can't know if it works. And I think Except- that's it, like backups, right? If you haven't restored it, it doesn't exist. And so exactly. HA is the same thing, but in this modern world, like we don't have maintenance weekends. We've got to find other ways to exercise these systems, and what we're heading towards is the Kubernetes world, where it's basically it's all HA all the time, and these things are pods are coming and going all the time, and it's just the state of normal.
0: Yeah, 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 and it's also a state of many, many options available, and not sure which ones to flip or change or or twist or turn. You know, I feel like we've we've created. I mean, we talked about dashboards earlier. We're going to get to dashboards. I'm going to. Everyone listening, to this we're going to get to dashboards. Don't worry, it's coming later. But you know, I feel like we, with Kubernetes and some of the modern platforms, we've created incredible um, opportunities <laughs> for mm. greatness as well mm. as not so greatness. And it, there's all that power in there. And I think there's, I think there's a bit of a, a reaction to that at the moment in the industry. Again, this is this is something that's maybe a bit more complex than we ever thought. What well, what is this beast we've created? But The power's in there to do good things. Mm. It's just, I think we, I want to go back to that thing you mentioned about exercising things once a month, I think you mentioned you Mm -hmm. were doing it and so yeah, they've been rebranded as game days by various people around the industry. And it's, I love the name. I think it gets misunderstood sometimes, but it's exercising is really, Mm -hmm. it's not just important for your physical, it's important for your systems. And I think that's really cool. That's a, that's a great takeaway. I think.
1: I think any dynamic system, right. Yes. If you want to go back out to yes. systems theory, like the, the more complex the system, the more you have to be intentional about exercising it fully And this, I could do this for yoga too, right? Like that's what, a, that's what a yoga set is all about. Is like just trying to move every single muscle in your body, at least a little bit.
0: This um, is why I have so many problems with my back. I just don't do any of those things, but I have a dynamic system. I am not exercising anywhere near as much as I should. I promise you that. Um, Okay, right. So let's we'll have to throw a little chaos at you. You know, get you get you moving. <laughs> yeah. Well, I am. I have a stand up table. I don't know if you can see it, but I'm actually, I mean, apart from being standing, I also have a dog around my feet that will definitely bite right, me yeah, if yeah. I go the wrong way. So
1: you're having to do the, the unexpected am. movements.
0: This is all. This is like ninja level. Standing at my table <laughs> is 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 a clear ninjutsu move. Um, okay. So you mentioned about these exercises now. So let's lead on the chaos engineering here. What's your, what's your sentiments around chaos engineering? Bear in mind, you are talking to someone who wrote a book on chaos engineering. So I have a definite bias on my side, but I'd, I'd Hmm. love to hear your thoughts on, on the chaos engineering. I'm going to call it a phenomenon, but that's probably a little dramatic.
1: Um, I I think it's a advanced practice, right? And I I go back and forth on this. Like I get in trouble with chaos folks all the time for saying this. but like, I, I also get the sense from a lot of folks in the field who, who look at chaos engineering with, with the longing that they wish they could do this fun stuff, um, except that they have so much chaos in, the, uh, in front of them in their daily lives, that doing experiments or doing science in production, which is the way I think of chaos engineering um, you know, it's just not available to them because they just go, well, it would just be lost in the noise. Right. So I feel like it's a higher level um, capability that SRE SRE teams in particular tend to gravitate towards. It doesn't have to be SRE. Right. Anybody can do chaos engineering. Um, But SREs tend to be placed in the right spot to put in the tools, to have access to the systems, to do experiments. Um, but like it has to come after observability, right? I, I don't know if that's a controversial opinion, but that's mine is if you can't observe the system, then you really can't measure the output of your experiments. So you're not really doing science. You're just fucking around and finding out, which is uh, legitimate, but it's not quite science because you can't write it down.
0: Exactly. I, I used to say to people, if, you, if you're if you just messing around with the system, you're, you're not a chaos engineer. You're a sadist. And if you own that... <laughs> And if you own that system, you're essentially a masochist. So, um, I I don't know about
1: (laughs) that. Right. Like it, I, I think that really the difference is, um, you know, being able to one reproduce your experiments, um, and being able to record your experiments now, you know, before we get all fancy, right? Like, sure. You can go in and screw around and test out theories and, and. A skilled, say, Kubernetes administrator could go in and like, okay, I'm going to go screw with this pod today in production and figure out just how it behaves. There's value in that. Now, we don't get a record out of the end. We don't get accountability. It's a high trust maneuver. It's a high skill maneuver done hopefully by an expert. But very often, you know, people overestimate their expertise and their ability and the danger of what they're doing. Um, You know, and so that's the that's the way it happens in the real world today is people learning right? And that's how we, we keep these c- hyper complex systems we all run. They're crazy complex. Um, how we keep them running is people keep learning from these little experiments and these little excursions and, and incidents, obviously. Um, so they're doing a form of chaos engineering, but it doesn't approach science, right? It's more like the the shade tree mechanic style, which I, I'm loath to disrespect, right? That's my roots. But also like we want to work in the glorious feature and we have um, expectations from the organizations that pay us that things are are predictable. And that's that's what you get between, you know, um, shade tree mechanics, right? Say like, well, I don't go to the stealership for that. They say stealership, right? Because the dealership charges a lot. But when you go to the Toyota dealer and have them replace a part on your car, you're going to get a Toyota's part. You're going to get it done the way it's supposed to be done. Everything's going to be torqued to the right specs. You know, it's going to be, you get a certain level of predictability and service from that. Whereas in the shade tree, you know, I might go down to the junkyard with a hammer and knock a part off of an old car, bring it home, maybe clean the grease off of it before I put it on your car and send you on your way, right? Yeah, so yeah. different models, both valid. Um, one just comes with additional predictability and um, ability, you know, and communication.
0: So that pre- you use the word predictable there, which is a really interesting one when it comes to the systems we work on, because we make a. I would say I'm going to say we make as engineering teams. We t- we're, we're at least encouraged to make a lot of promises and I think those that predictability is the sense is what people are often looking for when they say they want reliability the uh, mm-hmm. from the business's perspective the company's perspective that run the systems we want to we want to know it's going to work and we probably want to know when it's not going to um, and maybe we won't like that second mm-hmm. answer but that's that's something we want to know so have you ever encountered that where predictability is sort of transmogrified as, as as the conversation around reliability? And are they the same thing or are they quite different?
1: They're intersecting, right? Mm. Um, I, think, I think businesses tend to want predictability above all other things. Like predictably bad is better than unpredictably good, right? It, it, it's, it sucks to admit this. But, it, but it's often the first task, especially as an SRE trying to change an organization, is to accept it for what it is. And when you go and look at these organizations, very often, especially the bigger they are, the more that they value, well, we just want to know what's going to happen and when. But it's not actually a big deal whether the what is positive or negative to the engineers. Right. From the business standpoint, it's more important that it knows that it's coming.
0: Mm.
1: Right. And that, that has... All kinds of effects on how we actually do our work. Because as engineers, we're like, no, it should be predictable because that's excellent engineering. The business doesn't give a shit about engineering, right? It's it's a made up virtual entity, right? Out in, out in imaginary space and maybe some papers and things floating around various governments. But really, it's an imaginary thing outside of us. And so, um, but like, that's what it cares about. And we care about other things, and that's that's where we come together. Like where the humans are, continue to be important in these systems.
0: So kind of so, went off on a
1: tangent there, but
0: no, no, that is great. It's great, right? So, so there's this because I mean, I'm always con- I, I'm, when I hear someone talk about reliability, I always dig into what they really mean. What do they really mean? What's yeah. their sensitivity? What's the signals they feel are underneath this thing? And it does come down to re- to this predictability. They don't sit hmm. there and go. I, I want. I assume it's always going to work. Actually, there's this kind of fallacy that if you build an SLO, it's one of the big shocking conversations you're going to have with the business is that you know SLOs recognize that sometimes the system may be fail in a failing set, you know, situation or detectable as failing. Uh, that's not a shock to the business. That's usually not a shock to the business to non-technical, or I prefer the term non-technical stakeholders, people that don't don't get their hands dirty daily with this mm. sort of stuff we do. Um, they're not worried about that. What they tend to sit there and go is, can we predict when that's going to be? Because what their eyes on, their eyes on the business ball. the ball is going, you know, these users and customers and people who pay our wages one way or another are going to be here then. And that, and we want to predictably meet their expectations then with these Here's where the magic comes.
1: Go on. Go on. This is my favorite part to pick up this conversation. Please. Because um, we can talk about, Reli- or Latency and throughput is my favorite way to talk about this. Um, most of us have, have had some experience with, within a few years in our career of working on systems that are either very latency sensitive or throughput sensitive. Generally, without like infinite budgets, we have to choose one or the other. If you want high throughput, generally you give up the ability to predict the latency of a job finishing and say, let it go as hard as it can, as fast as it can. Damn the torpedoes. Um, and it might take... Five minutes, it might take an hour, but it's going to go as much throughput as it can. And, mm-hmm. you know, things will be done out of order. It's fine, right? But if you want real time, like the, the actual meaning of real time, which it's is predictable. that you know, there's a deadline for <laughs> yeah. how, how long it takes to deliver a request, um, and uh, it, it always stays under that deadline or 99.95% of the time it stays under the deadline. So now we're back in SLO territory. Yeah, It turns out most of the time we have to run systems at a capacity significantly lower than saturation. Yep. And so this is where we start to to make the business really uncomfortable because what we're doing in most of these businesses out there is we're running our engineers at saturation, trying to extract and get as much throughput out of them in feature work. And our job with SLOs and SRE and stuff is to come back in and talk to the business and be like, yes, I'm sure that throughput feels amazing when these features land, 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 land all of those incidents you're complaining about that are impacting your velocity, and all of the, the customer impact, if your customers coming and complaining to be like, the service is unreliable, we get 500s all the time, that's because you're running the, the system too hot. And you have to bring that load down and add some more slack back. And then you'll start to see that you're performing within your deadlines. And it's again, if you want that latency, that consistency and predictability, you have to leave slack in the system. I right? love but that's that. the discussion with the business that we have to have.
0: Yeah, it's, and I love that. And I, and it's, Do you know, what upsets me slightly about mm. that is that I've been having that conversation. I say I, I've seen that conversation being had back in my junior days. I was working at uh, General Dynamics on all sorts of real time systems for uh, aircraft and things. I did all mm. sorts of strange things in my youth. And I can remember that conversation going, you know what? You don't run a system at its max in order to make it. If you want it to be predictable, you've got to leave slack in there, and the slack Mm -hmm. is primarily about some unexpected stuff that can happen. That dots around it, so we we know we're going to have these things done, but and we may know the throughput, we may know somewhere that you know get to predict the latency, but you got You need slack. Slack is the is the key thing. And I mean, I'm saying slack here. Of course, I'm not talking about what people often. (laughs) I could just I could just see this being made. Sound bites from this being made as Slack adverts, and I just I don't <laughs> I don't want to enable that. Um, but the uh, but yeah, it's I can remember that back then, and that's twenty years ago. Or people say going safety we
1: tolerances, or what's the the margin of safety? The, yes, the yeah, RAS-BUSA model, I think. I do you know I don't know, but let's add it to the, not, not up the out. I'm not good at name dropping <laughs> part, but I, there's that that curvy triangle that a lot of people like to reference, and they talk about the margin of safety, and I really like that because you know it's not a line. Right. There's a certain amount of in in all of the different parts of the system, right, from the CPU heat budget, you know, and the power supply's ability to absorb power spikes all the way through our systems to the network, having buffers and things to be able to take, you know, unexpected loads um, to, you know, our software having instead of, you know, being every single request, maybe it writes to a queue and then picks stuff up off the queue. So we add all these little bits of buffering and things all the way through our system. That is our part of our margin of safety all the way through. Right. And so it's and it's variable, right? The different applications of the same server will have different outcomes and safety. And so that's why I like that. The margin. Or Slack is simpler, but like the word is kind of ruined now, like most like we're talking about with DevOps and SRE
0: and stuff. <laughs> I, I always wonder about uh, trademark conversations in companies around those sorts of things. You know, it's like wait, we come up with a great name for the product. What is it? It's the it's called Rain. <laughs> Like that's, that's, that's great, but we're going to ruin the English language, but, but it'll anywhere. be worth it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. exactly. I, that, hey, I have to hold my hand up. We, we're called Reliably. So I've ruined another one. We're, we're stealing all the good words. You know, what ha- you know how it happens, right? These decisions aren't made on, on any other basis other than, okay, can we get the name right, <laughs> as a URL? Right. And then we work back from there. We don't start with, are we going to ruin language? <laughs>
1: <laughs> right right well, okay, okay you start usually with what impact do we want to have on the people we're trying to get to buy this thing
0: well yes yes we did actually i should point that out when we when i in my my experience um chaos isn't what people want to buy so <laughs> when i'm naming my yeah. companies i called them chaos related names and that was like that's not what people want um they the, want the first, something the else. first
1: reaction the, the emotional <laughs> hit of chaos is everybody's like king kong um, right. Like, cause again, thank you, Netflix. Right. Like we started off with all these big, terrifying concepts tied to it. Chaos Kong and, um, chaos monkey. Oh, I
0: can, um, I, I can remember having that. I've mentioned this before on stage, but I'll mention it now. It's kind of fun. I used to have to say to people in banks, uh, you know, introduce <laughs> chaos engineering and they, they don't want it right? The last time they right, had right. chaos, it was 2008. It wasn't fun for anybody. So I, I say, you know, I used to have a different name for it. I used to call it continued, sorry, continuous limited scope disaster recovery. And, Whew. and they liked that. They kind of went for that. I could get a budget for that chaos. I wouldn't get a budget. I'd probably get marched out the building.
1: But can in Casey's Rosenthal is doing um, continuous validation. Oh, verification. 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 Yeah, yeah. I yeah, like yeah. that a lot. And I use yeah. that a lot when I talk about chaos, right? Yeah. Just to say, you know, when we get there, right, what we want to have is systems that continuously validate what we believe about the system is true. And we can automate that. Yes, that's different from and so people get a different uh, mindset when in the conversation, because it comes to Oh, it'll be a thing that's completely normal. Right. And we'll do this all the time.
0: Yeah, 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 and, yeah. And that
1: That's a different mindset from, you know, you're going to th- Throw a rock in the pool and watch the waves, you know, trickle out, right? Like they don't want that. They don't want you throwing rocks into the system. But it,
0: to me, it, that's it, what
1: we're doing. We're just automating the catapult. It's, it's all, <laughs> it's all underneath there. But yeah, it,
0: I yeah. remember, I remember, you know, saying, you know, essentially chaos engineering. We're we're kind of emphasizing the chaos. You you put engineering on a word like chaos, people immediately remove the engineering part. And they go, so it's chaos we want. And then, well, and and I always said, actually, there's a great quote from somebody else on this. I can't remember. I'm really bad at remembering who quoted <laughs> what, but <laughs> I too. will find it later. I'll put it in the cliff notes, right? But there was somebody who said, you know, if, if the very fact that you want to cause failures in production on their own is a good reason not to be allowed to be a chaos engineer, um, because <laughs> you have the wrong you have the wrong mentality. You're a, you're a psychopath. You're not a chaos engineer, I think, would be one way of looking I, at it.
1: I don't know about a psychopath. Probably, you know.
0: You lack um, empathy, maybe.
1: Yeah. I mean, some of these systems just seem to deserve it. Um, <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs> this, this is going to be the people I've run into. It's just they don't, they haven't, they don't understand yet, right? Like, and because a lot of people are toiling through, again, these systems are so complex. Yeah. Right. People going like, I just kind of want to break it some days. Right. And then they hear about chaos engineering or like it's screwing around in production. Like, oh, that sounds fun. I've got a license. Um, okay. <laughs> right. And instead of, like, and then we come and say like, no, you know, you have to design your experiment. You have to state your hypothesis and you've got to be able to repeat it or it's, or it is literally just fucking around.
0: And they're saying, they well, that's
1: boring. Now. That's boring. It's I, I, I had
0: my, I had my RM, <laughs> RM route. I was, ready.
1: <laughs> was well, ready to nuke that machine, but you know. <laughs> Um, we don't start by, you know, taking out that one machine that's holding everything together. We start by figuring out, you know, what the impact might be of taking that machine out.
0: I do. It's it, The question I used to ask is, what do we think we know? <laughs> and let's
1: work back yeah, from yeah.
0: there.
1: Um, right. So I'm going to move
0: on a little bit to SRE, back to SRE, away from chaos for a moment. So in all the places you've seen SRE, whether it was branded as such or not, um, adopted and, and used, um, Essentially, an engineering approach to reliability. Let's call it that. Hmm. I always think that's the, a great way of looking at it, and it's the way it's been defined a few times. Um, what's the biggest mistake you've seen when people are starting to adopt something like SRE? And maybe, maybe it's best asked as: What was the biggest mistake you saw b- before people started a cargo cult SRE? <laughs> um, so there could be ah. two different mistakes here. Um, anyway, yeah, what's what's the biggest mistakes you've seen?
1: Uh, The biggest one is the tendency for especially some leaders, um, young ones especially, um, to think of SRE as availability cops. Um, You know, like the SREs are going to hold the line on availability. They're going to measure it and make sure that you're meeting the requirements. Um, And I have kind of gone um, the opposite end of that spectrum because I just I find those approaches to SRE so unpleasant for myself as an SRE. And for the teams that we work with, right? Because I, if I come to a team and say like, "I'm going to punish you even more than what," because that's what they hear when you come at them like a cop, right? Like, "We're going to put SLOs on. We're going to make sure that your service is meeting the requirements. And if not, we're gonna service tell your level manager, officer,
0: service level officer.
1: Yeah. Come on, is Oh there. God, no. Like, like this is the worst way to do it. I think. But it's also the the naive first approach of a lot of people who are. Maybe uncomfortable talking about power dynamics, or um, you know, haven't really been through enough experiences with trying to move teams forward to understand how the negative consequences of the stick, even if you never swing it, right? Just having it there has on people's cognitive ability, right? So I come to the other side of the spectrum. Like my approach is very, you know, hippy hippy, um, no 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 cop behavior. <laughs>
0: So, so I mean, to put it like this, so what do you think of words like um, a service level objectives could be used for governance
1: and policies? I like that, for the most you like part. that? Yeah, yeah, that's okay. So Good. I say governance a lot because what I find leaders are looking for, you know, if you go to a VP of engineering or a director of, you know, product engineering or something like that, what they're usually desperate for is they're like, I'm trying to orient this team, you know, towards quality. I've also got all these other demands I'm trying to meet. So what I really need is information that will let me make better decisions. Right. And if I come when I talk to leaders, like like I said before, I talk to engineers, I tell them one story because they're looking for a particular outcome. And then for leadership, what they're really looking for is how the hell do I govern this thing? Right. The engineers are always bitching that there's too much feature work and they want to go work on the backlog, but they're always saying that. They're always going off and writing IDE plugins and crap we don't that don't help our feature. So help me, the business, understand how much of that work to let them do, right? Got and instead know. of yeah. us being like us versus the man, we start to say like, no, really, what we care about is that customer experience. We're going to measure it and we're going to give you that data. And we're going to show you when the reliability starts going sideways in your error budget, and sometimes we can predict when it's going to go really sideways, right? We can see the slope of the line and do a little bit of, you know, forecasting, and say you're going to be in trouble in a few weeks if you don't do something about this. Now, all of a sudden, we're giving them, we're empowering them as well to make better decisions at a organizational level. So that's where I, I like to take it.
0: That's perfect. Yeah, I think that's great, and I also don't think that's as hippy as you make it sound at first, because I think that's <clears throat> that's just good management. You know, I, 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 everyone agreeing what matters and then being out of line and move with it. I mean, I have to say the, the most overused word by myself as a CEO is always alignment. I'm here to yeah. align. I'm here it's to the align. New synergy. It is. I, I new think sy- we should
1: bring back synergy. <laughs> I like synergy. I've,
0: synergy. I've used synergy. I've used it. People cringe more with synergy. Um, they're going to start cringing with. The it's undeserved. Like- <laughs> they, they, again, great words, overused and yeah. abused. Um, okay. So it's that time. It's oh. time for dashboards. Oh. Okay, so let's go there. Let's go to dashboards. I so didn't gonna,
1: bring any fire. I need there something is- to <laughs> set something on fire. And I, no, know, I re- have to get really close to my microphone and the sound wouldn't come through.
0: See, I used to be able to do a really great movie voice. You know, the introductory voice. Oh, yeah, of, yeah, uh, yeah.
1: You know, sort of um, today.
0: today. That's sort of the level of voice. But I can't do it anymore. I haven't got the voice anymore for it. But so there's a bit of a pogrom, and I like that word. I've been building up to using this word. I haven't used this word for a long time. Ooh, pogrom, a pogrom against dashboards, into some degree. And um, I, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna sort of take the opposite position on this. I think a, a good dashboard. I've seen some nice ones when I've walked into offices and people gather around these things, and they actually seem to prompt positive action. They don't, uh, Dave not Hound calls those
1: information radiators.
0: I'm happy with the term. I'm ha- but for me they're a dash. But anyway, so yes, information radio is great, and I and I can even as a visitor, I get them. I can understand them. I can I get them at a glance. Sometimes mm. I even get the tempo or the the taste of how people are working there, and that to me is is a decent thing to have. It isn't going to solve the world. It shouldn't give a full sense of security, but that's the point because it's not giving a full sense of security. It's prompting positive action. It's not just sitting there going blinky, blinky. We're all good. Um, uh-huh. However, right. There's a lot of things against dashboards at the moment. And I, de- I definitely believe in some of the arguments against and I have some for. What's your take? What's the Amy Toby take on the current dashboard debate? <sighs>
1: Do. I, you know I, I understand char- <laughs> I understand charity's argument right so I, I really do have a foot in both sides of this um, the, the the main problem I think I have with dashboards as the default way that we look at the way our systems are behaving is those of us who build most of them and promote most of them have a, a lot of context in our heads right and so I, I keep going back to the this is how I kind of explain observability is for, for years, when I, especially when I was doing a lot of Cassandra work, I would show up at somebody's shop. I was, I was the last line of, of defense on a lot of calls, right? Like the SAs would go out and try to performance tune these things, and they would call the other SAs, and they'd get through all the way through their call tree, and then they'd finally be like, all right, maybe we need to call Amy in. And then they, they would ping me and be like, hey, we kind of got this performance thing, and I would show up, or right? I'd be like, okay, um, give me a shell on the box, a couple of these machines. I'm going to run DSTAT for about 10 minutes um and then i'm going to stare at the stare at the logs in the dstat you know in two windows and then usually i'll sit there and look at them for a while and i'll go have you looked at x and they'll go no and they'll go look at it and be like holy shit that's what it was and i've done that like a few times and people are always like how do you do that teach me to do that and so i've been thinking about how do i teach this for a long time and it comes down to really it is an experience it is the context that we carry in our heads that we've learned from looking at these metrics over and over hours and hours and hours of experience with them. Same for dashboards, right? You can probably do this. I know I can do this. I know a lot of people, especially in ops can do this. Walk into somebody else's office, see a dashboard on the wall, see the slope of the line going up and down, you know, and go, ah, I see that traffic was up at eight o'clock in the morning and then kind of dipped down to two o'clock in the morning. And I see that, you know, the developers maybe started, But that brings a lot of context that I already had to interpret what I'm seeing on that dashboard. And so for those of us that are steeped in it through most of our life, it's perfectly natural to look at a dashboard and go, aha, I have all this context. I understand what's going on here. But for the majority of the engineers we're trying to reach that we haven't already reached with dashboards, they don't typically have that same context and practice of reading dashboards. Right. So when we throw a wall of graphs in front of someone. That isn't used to that, that doesn't understand the underlying metrics, where they're coming from and how they're getting there and what their imperfections are, how, you know, what the difference between different sample rates um, and how that impacts what we actually see. Like, that's all stuff that we just kind of automatically step through without even thinking about it as SREs. Um, But now when we get down to an engineer, like, a lot of times that isn't apparent to them right away when they look at the dashboard. So we need to change that. The way that we push information out to these folks, because developer the developer experience is getting wider and wider over time. We can't expect homogenous education or experience with looking at various metrics. Um, and so that's where I think the distributed tracing you know charities viewpoint comes in and changes things, right? And we have to be emphatic to get through, um, and I think is why a lot of these opinions come out is very salty, right? Because yeah, clearly dashboards have value, right? We we still use them in incidents all the time to solve problems, so we should have dashboards, especially on things that are very dashboardy, like CPU usage and things like that. The average
0: motor vehicle. Just to, I, I've, yeah. always, I've always used the analogy of you give me observability for my car, and I would be freaking out every five meters because everything <laughs> would be going. It's dying. It's like, oh no, we're good. We're good. No, we're definitely dying. We're dying, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, but but you know, give me a dashboard that sits there and doesn't light up, then I'm cool. <laughs> <laughs> and, right, but, that's, right. but but that's the, yeah, it's, it's a kind of a tongue in cheek point. Really. I get where you're coming from. And I've always loved.
1: I used to drive cars like that though, right? Like, you know, yeah. you have the oil pressure gauge and the temperature gauge. And I used to always buy junkers and fix them. Yeah. I still, so, I like, still, you know, do. they'd still be like have weak oil pressure and it would dip down to 20. And it'd be like, Ooh, oh, I don't know if I like that while driving. Um, we don't do that as much anymore. Right? I, I, Nobody I reads still their oil it. pressure gauge anymore.
0: I don't do that. I don't do that. I, but I have a Harley Davidson. So I have, I have all of that rubbish going on as well. well so but it's this, always
1: got oil flying out of it.
0: Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, let's not talk about the horrific cost to the environment in the world, but you know, this, you know, it's basically a radiator that I sit on and it's, it's yeah. the same thing. It's so basic. I know from the feel of the engine and what's going on in there, <laughs> whether it's good or bad or indifferent. Um, and You're right. We built up all these sensitivities to these underlying concepts that are all hidden away in our heads. And finding a way that people can grok that is the right level of is are we back to the right level of abstraction? Is that the essential problem here again in our worlds where, you know, the dashboards are often built for a level of of abstraction and knowledge that isn't good enough for the broadness now of the team that might be interested and involved? Is Mm. that is that a one way? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, okay. I mean, we got to meet people where they are. And, and you know, when we started building all these dashboards, when Grafana started and back in the Graphite days, right, We the systems weren't that big. You could monitor CPU and disk space. In general, you were pretty good. But now when a single request might flow through 12 microservices, um, it's it just you're never going to see that in in the traditional dashboard. So we have to go forward to something a little bit more robust that communicates the complexity of the system and the context as much as possible. Obviously, it's never going to be perfect. But now with the distributed chasing view, you see the request being broke down across microservices, across network boundaries, which is, you know, usually where the shenanigans are. Yeah, And now developers get that context delivered to them. And maybe they can grow from there and start to understand the dashboards, which is, I think, ultimately our outcome, right? Is we want people to grow and to, to maybe grow down into the, the low level stats, as opposed to being like, you have to go back to the fundamentals and learn all this stuff that I learned, you know, through osmosis and 20 years of operations.
0: the stuff I can't explain to you. And I don't even know. I've learned so much. I've forgotten more than I need you to learn. That sort of Just stare at
1: screens a lot for for a decade. You'll be fine. I I used (laughs) to have that. I
0: used to have that. I used to have a fabulous uh, gentleman that used to work in the company. I had that genius in the company that just knew how it all worked, but he also had the patience of an angel. Because he would sit with all the new starters and he would sit there. Literally, he would sit with someone like me who had probably lied to get the job and was, you know, sitting there (laughs) not really knowing what they were doing. You know, obviously not knowing what they were doing. And he'd be like, it's okay. Now, just watch me do this. But the problem was he was so fast on the keyboard that he would say, just (laughs) do this. And they would be like, wow. Yeah, I'll just do that next time. Yeah, um, <laughs> so I, I, actually got into this habit of thinking just if I had a camera that had slow motion, I could, I could slow him down and see what the heck he's doing. These days I do that. I choose my, I totally use my iPhone to do that. Um, but I didn't have it at the time. Okay. So we're getting to sort of towards the end of this first episode. Yeah, Thank yeah. you, Amy, for, for being here today and talking to us. I've got one more question. If
1: you All don't right. mind
0: one more, you don't have to answer it because it's kind of a confession or it's requesting a confession, which is worse. Oh Yes. So the confession is this, what is the most, you don't have to mention companies or anything that might get you any, into any litigation. What's the worst in, or most spectacular, that's better. What's the most spectacular incident that you've been a part of or your team has been a part of that, that you had to traverse and deal with? And how did it go? What's, what's, what's the, any learnings from, from a biggie, from a big crisis moment, a su- big surprise is the phrase I would probably use.
1: A big surprise. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of a few. because I, <laughs> I, I did, a number of inc- did run a number of incidents as Incident Commander at Netflix. Um, there was that one, I don't know, was it 2015? I think that um, one of the big DNS providers corrupted all of their DNS databases across the world. Um, half the internet went down. Um, that one was really fun. <laughs> um, but that was early in my stay there, right? And I was Im- immediately like... This is a DNS thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was but, the answer. Um, it's always the answer.
1: I, I'm, I'm thinking of the GitHub one um, from 2018. I wasn't incident commander. I was still really new at the company, but I was kind of watching that whole incident go by. And there was just, you know, the number of things that happened. There is a public incident report for about that one, so I can talk about it a little bit.
0: Great. If I can um, get that to link to everybody too. After sure, us, yeah. The, too.
1: the big uh, October 2018 outage where GitHub was down for a day. Um, internally, right, like we had... We had a split brain database, um, you know, and we took the safe action to kind of make sure that the data was integrity was preserved and then had to go through and restore a whole bunch of replicas and all this stuff. And it involved the entire GitHub team over 24, 36 hours. And then I did most of my work came after in the kind of the incident um, debriefs and getting all the material together for the incident report. But, like, that one was, was really interesting because there were things that smelled like human error, right? And, and I was all excited to be, like, show off my knowledge of, like, yes, let's make sure that, it, but, like, nobody went for the human error. It was great. Um, <laughs> you know, because we could have easily blamed remote hands for that one, right? But, like, remote hands can't be at fault for an incident. Like, you know, we need to plan for this stuff. Um, I guess, you know, you asked you ask about an incident. That would That would be probably the biggest, most publicly visible one that I can talk about.
0: That's great. No, no, thank you very much. And it's, um, yeah, I wouldn't have wanted to be anywhere near any of those that you just mentioned, frankly. <laughs> although I would. I mean, the the feeling is always after the event, it's been a fly on the wall. I think I'm a natural hist- um, historical person. I, I like looking back and commenting and going, God, that was something we, almost like what all all sports says, you know, it's easy to look back and go, well, we we shouldn't have done that. And, and, and re, and reinterpret it. Yeah, exactly. Reinterprets things from the future. Okay. So for those that are listening uh, and hanging in there with us, how can they follow you and know more about you? Where should they go to, to get to know Amy more?
1: Well, my primary platform is Twitter. I am at miss Amy, Toby. Um, M-I-S-S-A-M-Y-T-O-B-E-Y. Um, and uh, that's my main spot. So if I write a blog or anything, that's where I'll post it. My um, GitHub is Tobert. Um, but, you know, it's not as exciting, I think. <laughs>
0: fair enough. Fair enough. Um, okay, Amy, thanks again for being here today for the very the inaugural Episode of Rigcast. Um, if anyone listening is interested in the Reliability Interest group or Rigcast or more about Miss Amy, everything will be in the notes that go out with this particular episode. And that just leave me to say thank you, Amy. Have a great rest of the day, and thanks for taking the time today to talk to us.
1: It's my pleasure. Have a great day.
0: The Rigcast has been sponsored this time by Reliably. You check them out at reliably.com and the Reliability Research Institute.